Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of SEPAD Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Dr. Sanam Vakil. Sanam is Deputy Head and Senior Research Fellow for the Middle East and North Africa Program at Chatham House. She's the author of a number of publications on Iran, including a 2013 book published by Bloomsbury, and also a recent report entitled Iran, the GCC, Hedging, Pragmatism and Opportunism, and also Getting to a New Iran Deal, a guide for Trump, Washington, Tehran, Europe and the Middle East. So there's a lot to talk about with Sanam today, but Sanam, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for having me, Simon. It's a pleasure to have this conversation. Uh, the pleasure is all mine, Sanam. Thank you so much for finding time. I realize uh, you've had a very busy diary traveling across the Middle East, so I'm really pleased that we could get this scheduled. Um, Sanam, I normally start these these discussions with a question about what it is that got you interested in the politics of the region. So in keeping with that, then, what was it that, that pushed you down the political route? Uh, always a good question, uh, the context or the background. Um, I am from the region. I am uh, Iranian and was born in Tehran and left Iran uh, around the time of the revolution um, and uh, traveled annually almost uh, back to Iran uh, throughout most of my, my life, um, and that got me interested in um, understanding Iran more, um, was um, even more interested to understand uh, uh, what led to the revolution and then, of course, uh, the regional policies uh, that came after. What was your, your initial experience of, of politics in Iran? What, what can you remember that first piqued your interest? Um, I think there were uh, stories of uh, political life um, dating back to uh, the time of uh, Reza Shah that my grandmother used to tell me about, right. uh, sort, of, sort of the changes um, uh, domestically in Iran, um, the uh, government's efforts at trying to manage its relations with external powers. Um, and I think the, those memories, seeing the politics at the time, experiencing the war to a certain degree, you know, all all uh, very much um, impacted and, and sort of uh, made me more interested in understanding the dynamics, uh, the domestic dynamics and the international dynamics. Fascinating. Uh, where, where did you then decide to do your, your undergraduate studies? I studied at Barnard College, which is um, the sister school of Columbia University. Okay. And you studied in New York politics? City. Um, I did. I studied politics and history, um, although I didn't particularly focus on um, the Middle East um, as such. I um, pursued general um, international relations and, and comparative politics. Uh, so that was sort of uh, my initial uh, foray in, into this world. I then thought that I wanted to go and be a banker right. okay. <laughs> in New York. And I worked in the private sector for a few years. 
only to realize that um, I wasn't very interested or passionate about uh, private sector work and mergers and acquisitions and, <laughs> and those sort of things. Right. So you came back to academia for a master's and PhD. So what was the, the thesis on? Um I I wrote my thesis on U.S. Um, U.S. Iranian relations, um, looking at uh, the uh, dynamics between ideology and uh, national interests in the relationship, um, arguing that. Uh, uh, ideology was less of a component or, or, or a divider um, in the relationship. Um, and I specifically looked at the period uh, um, up until President Khatami's presidency. Uh, I never published my dissertation, um, and it, I think, still remains uh, quite relevant. Uh, but I, I tend to have a pattern of getting um, tired of my projects once I'm done with them and, <laughs> and and then I don't take them to the next level unfortunately. Well I think we should have a conversation maybe off air about getting that that dissertation published sometime. Um, Sanam, what, you, you talked about national interest and ideology just out of interest how do you how do you position ideology within the national interest then or what's the relationship between the two? I think that's a great question. Um, I think within the context of uh, the Islamic Republic, um, ideology uh, serves the national interest very much. Um, I mean, everyone looks at the Islamic um, revolution and sees it only through the prism of uh, this revisionist ideology and this revisionist sort of political system that came to fruition and from 1979 onwards, um, whereas I was arguing that ideology um, is uh, sort of subsumed under the national interest. Uh, ideology was more useful um, as part of the national interest um, of Iran. And um, because of that, ideology can always be cast to the, to the wayside. Um, so it's a useful political tool, but it is not sort of the principal determining factor of Iran's foreign policy or domestic policy. Fascinating. And I guess, given that you've also spent time recently looking at, at other Gulf states in your role at Chatham House, to what extent would you say that that, that thesis applies to the other GCC states and, and say Saudi Arabia in particular? Um, I, I think that it probably does um, apply to a certain degree. Um, I think ideology, or I've always looked at um, uh, both Iran and Saudi Arabia as, as um, sort of uh, similar states, uh, two um, competing um, and contending political um, entities that uh, use ideology for pragmatic national interest purposes. Um, and, you know, we're seeing, for example, in Saudi Arabia today, um, a movement away from religious ideology, um, perhaps because Mohammed bin Salman no, the crown prince no longer sees it as uh, useful um, in um, providing uh, internal cohesion, uh, legitimacy inside Iran, and instead moving away, moving towards um, uh, sort of transformative, economically liberalizing social um, and nationalist ideology as as um, uh, a legitimizing tool for the uh, for the monarchy in Saudi Arabia. So I, I do think that there are somewhat similar trends. The problem is that in Iran, um, 
there hasn't been enough of a movement away from the pragmatic use of ideology or, or sort of translating ideology into nationalist purposes in a, in a meaningful way. I guess that's something to, to keep a close eye on as, um, as we start to see protests breaking out across Iran. I guess that would be an interesting thing to, to watch. Um, yes, definitely. Sanam, before we talk about your, your recent work at Chatham House, I wonder, can you just say a little bit about your, your Bloomsbury book, please? Action and Reaction, Women and Politics in Iran. What are you trying to do in that? Um, this is uh, a book um, that uh, grew out of um, not my, let's say, um, primary area of uh, research and engagement um, in Iran, but came um, as a res- as sort of secondary um, outcome of much of my research, my dissertation research, and my re- um, developed relationships over the years. Um, I, uh, through my travels and meetings, um, developed uh, contacts with uh, a number of very interesting and dynamic women, and I became more fascinated by the uh interaction um, between women's groups um, of many different ideological leanings um, and the state. And so this book was um, my attempt at exploring um, and and trying to define um, these different um, pathways of navigation. Ultimately, in the Middle East, um, specifically in Iran, and I think I'm seeing somewhat similar patterns in Saudi Arabia today, the state um, has very much managed and controlled um, women's issues for their own political purposes and, and for their own um, domestic and international purposes. Um, and interestingly, within the Islamic Republic, um, the state, even in 1979, continued to grant women, uh, give keep uh, women um, having the right to vote, um, but at the same, and used and mobilized women much for their political purposes. Um, but because of Islamic ideology, um, developed uh um, a contentious relationship with women's groups as well. So the book tries to um, uh, explain how both the state and women have tried to navigate uh, these this process that has developed over the course of uh, four decades, really. And when the outcome, I think, that I saw was that um, gender activism and gender consciousness after four decades of, of living under um, an Islamic interpretation of, of women's rights um, is one, it's sort of a, um, was an unforeseen consequence of uh, the revolution and, and um, the reliance on Islamic law. So it's been very hard to put the, the genie of women's activism back in the box. Uh, mm-hmm. So that is, a, you know, a positive story um, that has emerged. It hasn't really um, completely flourished, but it has emerged. And I think that's um, something to be positive about when looking at Iran. Sure. That's really interesting to hear. And I guess We've all seen the the images of, of protesters and, and women protesters taking off the the hijab and and pushing the hijab back in acts of everyday resistance within the context of these these political um, and legal structures, right? It's how. Sorry. Yes. On, please. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yes. Yes. There's active um, 
Um, there's been active resistance in the creation and development of women's groups, from the one million signature campaign to um, this, you know, the stadium campaign to there's, you know, all sorts of campaigns that have developed over the years, child custody campaigns and the like. And then there's been sort of the passive ordinary that you just described that. Um, you know, the politics of every day, from how you dress to how you wear your veil to how you engage with the state, um, that has also developed um, in reaction. Um, and so, uh, and I think there was a third avenue as well in, in sort of um, allowing for um, women uh, to maintain um, suffrage and to be engaged in the political system. Um, at the same time, um, the state um, sort of opened the door uh, for uh, activist women uh, to uh, to emerge within the state apparatus. And even conservative women, um, religiously conservative women, um, who maybe uh, were much more reluctant to challenge some uh, readings of Sharia law with regards uh, to women's rights, uh, did not want to see their uh, political presence or their presence on the streets of Tehran rolled back. So you just saw, you know, different interpretations of um, women's activism. And I think that was really interesting. Yeah, certainly. Uh, Sana, we'll take a, a quick change of pace, if I may. And a lot of your work recently has been around um, Iran and the GCC and, and the role of the United States. And, and that's come out in a number of, of reports over the past year or so on, on looking at the relations between the various actors in the Gulf and, and what this might mean. And I mentioned two reports earlier on. Uh, about the nuclear deal and, and about Iran's relations with the GCC. But I wonder, broadly speaking, can you just tell us a bit about how you think Iran's relations with the GCC states have evolved in the past couple of years since we saw the, uh, the US withdraw from the nuclear deal? What's the impact on, on Gulf politics, do you think? Um, that's, that's an interesting question. I think that um, Iran has not yet developed an effective policy towards uh, the GCC states. And it, um, as I uh, sort of wrote in my first uh, report that looked at Iran's relations with the smaller GCC states, um, Iran has been quite sort of dismissive, I think, of its Gulf neighbors and um, instead has very much focused its uh, relations or lack thereof um, with uh, Asian countries and with Western countries um, and hasn't really um, prioritized uh, the Gulf in any way. And that's, I think, because historically, of course, uh, the ties have been rather tepid. There hasn't been significant amounts of trade except for with the UAE. Um, and, and relations um, are historical, but Iran is seen as sort of this, you know, very big actor um, that uh, is is much more of a menace and a geographic um, threat, if you will, uh, that has interfered and intervened in 
in the region in, a, in an unproductive way. And this dates back to even uh, during the reign of Mohammad Reza Shah, rather than being a proactive, integrative, um, cooperative neighbor. Uh, so I think that Iran's relations with the GCC countries are very much hampered by historical um, historical uh, ties um, that have not really developed in a meaningful way. Um, the threat of the Iranian revolution, the threat of exporting the revolution is something you always hear about, uh, particularly in the Gulf. Um, and Iran hasn't really considered the GCC as uh, valuable um, partners. Um, and I think that has also obstructed the relationship. Right. What are the, the structural impediments, do you think, that that are getting in the way of a, a diplomatic rapprochement, if you will, between Iran and the Gulf states. Not particularly the Iranians and the Saudis, because I think that's a little bit more complex. But between Iran and the and the smaller Gulf states, there are. You've just alluded to history, but I wonder if you could say a bit about the other factors that are that are prohibiting some type of diplomatic rapprochement, if you will, or or thawing, perhaps, is a, a better way of putting it. Sure. Um, well, I think that the, from the Iranian perspective, they have not wanted, um, except for quite recently, to have a structured relationship with the GCC. Instead, what the Islamic Republic has tried to do is to have bilateral ties with the smaller GCC states, um, each of which has uh, their unique challenges um, within the GCC itself. So um, it has tried to peel off um, these states from each other and uh, build on intra-GCC tensions, particularly with Saudi Arabia, in order to have these bilateral relations that um, are not really uh, meaningful in terms of economic uh, ties, um, but provide Iran with off-ramps and opportunities for Iran not to be completely isolated and marginalized. And frankly, because these smaller GCC states are sort of caught between, um, you know, geographically large and, and politically influential Saudi Arabia and and, um, and then Iran to the north, uh, they have been uh, very much caught in between uh, these dynamics. And at the same time, there has been, um, of course, the role of the United States in, in all of this that should also, you know, um, be mentioned. Um, the United States has provided historically security guarantees and protection for the GCC states. Um, and I think that that has also uh, perhaps prevented uh, a more integrative approach uh, for all sides uh, at the same time. You mentioned the United States, and I think you're right that this is a, a huge impediment. And let's Let's move on to look at this in a bit more detail, if that's okay, to, to look at the report on the nuclear deal. Now, I, I think that the decision to withdraw from the nuclear deal is obviously a, a, a seismic moment for, uh, for Gulf politics and Middle Eastern politics, perhaps more broadly. And you've just published this, this wonderful report with your colleague, Neil Quilliam, about, about this and about the nuclear deal and possible ways around it. Can you tell us a bit about what was motivating this, what the key findings were, and, and how you went about doing it, please? Sure. Um, this 
this uh, this project came to fruition really because um, I was going to meeting after meeting and everybody was very much speculating uh, that U.S. policy was very much directed towards regime change or there were questions about um, what the motivations of the Trump administration's um, withdrawal from the JCPOA and um, imposition of sanctions um, would, would sort of yield with regards to Iran. So I wanted to test out... Um, uh, scenarios and, and, and speak to experts um, around the world uh, and 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 try a, a different methodological approach uh, to uh, um, making policy recommendations. So Neil and I interviewed um, experts in ten countries, the signatories of the JCPOA, um, and we decided to broaden the scope and include. Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, um, because the Trump administration also repeatedly said that uh, they needed to create a bigger, better deal, a more comprehensive deal, one that would also uh, placate the concerns of regional actors. And so we wanted to see uh, what the, these regional actors uh, thought about Trump's strategy and um, possibility for future negotiations. And so we engaged in off-the-record interviews with uh, current and former policymakers, as well as experts. Um, and uh, we interviewed 75 people. And it's important to just state that these interviews don't reflect official government positions, but uh, reflect personal opinions sure, um, yeah. of, of informed experts on, on the issue. Um, but the report uh, brings together this analysis um, and makes recommendations um, uh for uh, the um, international community on how to move forward in this standoff with Iran. Uh, specifically, we lay out four scenarios as identified by our interviewees um, uh, on how things could proceed. One would be a grand bargain, which has been sort of the um, objective of the Trump administration. A second option would be to negotiate a smaller um knock-on agreement um, from the JCPOA that we refer to as a JCPOA plus scenario uh, that wouldn't be as comprehensive uh, but would could be a first step uh, to um, a better agreement with Iran. Um, a third scenario would be to uh, separate the nuclear ballistic missile issue and regional issue and negotiate three separate deals uh, with the Islamic Republic. And a fourth um, scenario, as identified by some of our interviewees, that um, was that there would be no diplomatic solution to this current crisis. Right, okay. A nice cheery outcome there. Yes, yes. Sanam, these these outcomes, is there a, a, a preference or perhaps a difference in the views um, that you got from particular interviewees in, in, say, Saudi compared to Iran or Israel compared to Qatar? Or is there, is there a breakdown that sheds a bit more light on these things or, or is it just a, a collection of, of perceptions across the board? 
No, um, the report does bring together our findings with some, um, I think, uh, quite snazzy graphics, and there is actually um, a interactive map uh, that is also available online that goes into detail about the different country positions, ranging from China to Iran, all, all of the, in, um, the countries that were um, selected. Um, the findings are specifically available. Um, I can talk more uh, in detail about the priorities for, um, for Iran, if you're interested, in, and sort of maybe the Gulf positions. Um, where, sure, I think that's a good idea. Um, okay. Um, I think that uh, specifically... Um, I mean, let's just say a majority of our interviewees identified a JCPOA plus as um, the most likely option going forward. Um, and this is because um, they did not see and, and they identified a number of variables that would limit a wider negotiation. And, and those variables included lack of trust between Tehran and Washington, um, the Trump administration's um, zero-sum sanctions-based um, approach to towards Tehran, the fact that there haven't been um, any uh, uh, meaningful interlocutors that have been identified, there is no back channel that has um, been started up, um, and also specifically that um, uh, both Tehran and Washington, both um, both sides um, specifically said that they didn't know who to talk to or who to trust within the various administrations. And I can say this, um, you know, in anecdotally or informally that in conversations I've had with individuals on both sides, they specifically are asking for advice on who who would be a good interlocutor within the Iranian government or within the U.S. government. So um, I think that has been a great inhibiting factor. And so the JCPOA plus model was suggested by a majority of our respondents as a more easily um, obtained outcome that would prohibit uh, a, a nuclear crisis with Iran. And that deal would see some extensions to the current JCPOA. It would um, lead to perhaps um, enhanced inspection and monitoring of Iran's nuclear facilities, um, greater clarification on certain um, certain elements of the current JCPOA that I don't need to maybe specify right now. And additionally, um, the a JCPOA plus could see um, a codification of Iran's um, uh, agreement not to pursue intercontinental ballistic missiles. Um, what uh, these respondents um, did say is that uh, regional issues and and ballistic missile proliferation. Um, could not be addressed in, in such a deal, uh, really because the moment you um, sort of wade into the territory of regional issues, you it, it becomes a, a conversation that would be much harder to unlock. So these interviewees also suggested that um, there should be a commitment made to begin to discuss regional issues as as part of a follow-on agreement. Um, so that would also be rolled into what a JCPOA plus would look like. That's really interesting to hear. Uh, Sanam, we've taken up so much time already, but if I may ask you one final question. And sure. That is, where do you think things will go from here, given these interviews and given the work that you've been doing? Where, where do you see Gulf politics heading in terms of the, the diplomatic um, wranglings of the region? 
Well, I'm a bit pessimistic that um, the, uh, regarding any sort of rapprochement between um, the Gulf countries and Iran, or uh, I think that um, we have seen uh, some murmurings of rapprochement. Of the UAE appears to have pursued its own quiet bilateral de-escalation, um, but I don't see Saudi Arabia overtly engaging in that similar um, pathway, uh, really because, um, and, and this is reflected in my interviews, I don't see the Gulf as having thought of a lo- thought out a long-term strategic um, policy uh, that could f- facilitate better relations with Iran. Instead, and this is also reflected in a lot of engagement I have in the Gulf, um, there, there seems to be some sort of zero-sum approach um, that um, Gulf countries think that Iran just has to change. Iran has to change its behavior. Iran has to change its constitution. Iran, there, there are these zero-sum demands, um, and um, the aperture is not open enough to engage in um, what I think um should should come to fruition, but a conversation that would lead to compromise on both sides. Um, and I, I truly believe that for Iran to change, um, our way of engagement with Iran is also um, got to adjust. I'm not saying that. Um, I think that I guess what I'm saying is that a change in Iran and and a change of the Islamic Republic is going to require time, and so the international community has to help nurture that change, and it's it can be nurtured through engagement and diplomacy and uh, through pressure. Um, I don't I don't believe that uh, sanctions and pressure um, create an environment to nurture change, um, specifically within the Iranian context. Of course. Senan, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been really interesting hearing your thoughts and hearing more about the the reports that you've been doing. So really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. And as always, thank you for listening. Until next time.